What a story, what a story, what a story. What a story, what a story, what a story. Hi, this is Ina Chadwick. It's the last Saturday of the month. What a story. This was a tough week, so I'm not going to tell too much of a story. My grandson, Charlie, or Charles Anthony Capalbo, died last week at age 23, only one month short of 24. His will to live inspired thousands of people for five years. He met unsurmountable challenges and odds against each of his four deadly cancer diagnoses. He fell in love. He had a wonderful relationship with a young lady who stayed with him during these times. His mother, my daughter, Jennifer, posted this song on the FB page, Friends of Charlie Capalbo. my angel time to close your eyes and save these questions for another day and in our playlist perfect for grandparent bill bosch he's going to get a tattoo and his granddaughter will dictate what it says gabby coatsworth She and her new husband, long time ago, couldn't put their furniture together in their new house. Didn't work. They found a way. She will be reading from an excerpt, an unpublished part of her recent memoir, Love's Journey Home. Phil Holt, a regular, he submits nice little plays for us. But he told, or he tells a real story here of a scary day when he went to take a nap and nothing was the same when he woke up. Bob Ost, a truly artistic person who writes editorial opinion pieces on the Theater Resources Unlimited newsletter, where he is not only the founder, but the executive director. And then Susan Jacobson, a a professional performance artist, a writer, a dancer, an actress. She sat down to enjoy a beautiful spring day on the Park Avenue median in New York. And she doesn't know why she was the one sitting on that median once other worlds fell apart. Thank you for listening today. About 10 years ago, I got my first tattoo. I got a piece of Robert Frost poetry on my shoulder. I love that tattoo and I love the experience, but it's been 10 years and I think it's about time 
for another tattoo. And I've been thinking long and hard about exactly what I want to get. Do I want to get a figure from the little prince? Do I want to get more words of poetry? And where exactly do I want to have this tattoo placed? I figure I'm so old now that it'll be a pretty crisp tattoo until the last of my days. Well, in thinking about it, I do think I may have come to a conclusion and a solution for my next tattoo. About a couple of weeks ago, I was babysitting for my three and a half year old granddaughter named Adelaide. She is the love of my life. I like to spend as much time as I possibly can with her. And we were babysitting. We were, I, I was up in one of the bedrooms with her and we were playing as we always do family. Sometimes I have to be the baby. Sometimes I have to be the daddy. We do all different kinds of things. And she looked up in the ceiling and that's the opening to the attic. And she said, Papa, can we go in the attic? I said, absolutely, Adelaide, let's go. We pulled down the stairs. We stepped up a few steps. She got about halfway up and she said, this is really scary. I said, yeah, it is a little scary, but you're a brave girl. You have a lot of courage. She said, I think I want to go down. I said, okay, we'll go down. We closed the attic door. We played a little more family, but not but 20 minutes later, she said, Papa, I think I want to go in the attic. I said, okay, that's fine. Let's head up there. We pull down the stairs. We go about three quarters of the way up. And she said, Papa, this is really scary. I said, I know it is, but I also know that you're very brave. She said, yes, I'm strong. I said, yes, but you're brave too. I said, Adelaide, can you be brave for me? She looked me in the eye and she said, yes. And I said, okay. Hold on carefully, hold tight with your hands. Let's go up and over the next four steps, now we emerge into the wonderland of the attic with all decorations for holidays and toys and a dollhouse that belonged to her mother and the accompanying dolls and it was wonderful. And we played up there and we had a great time. We came down, we played some more family and then eventually went out to play in her backyard where she has this big swing set that was built that you can climbing walls and, and a little picnic bench and a, a podium that's about six or seven feet high and then a, a slide and she's laughing and going up and down and up and down. And she finally looks at me and she says, Papa, come down the slide. I was hesitant. I thought, oh, if I climb up on there, maybe, you know, I'm a little bit older perhaps I'll break something of my own or the actual playground. And I said, mm, I don't think so, Adelaide. I'm, she said, come on, Papa, go down the slide, go down the slide. I looked at her, I said, mm, I'm not sure. And then she looked at me very seriously, put both of her little tiny hands over her chest as if she were placing them on her heart. And she said, Papa, can you be brave for me? Well, clearly I climbed up onto the top of that platform and I went down that slide, not once, but several times. And it could be very possibly that I have found my new tattoo. Can you be brave for me? Nesting. When the movers truck pulled up in front of the house in Fairfield, Connecticut, a week after we'd arrived from Chicago in 1983, I couldn't wait to see how my furniture would look in our new home. It looked awkward. Maybe the irregular shape of some of the rooms contributed to this. Or perhaps I was having trouble assimilating the things Jay brought with him from his first marriage. Unlike mine, an eclectic mix of family antiques and the folding items bought in Chicago, 
Jay's contributions tended to be heavier, reproduction and a bit shabby. We put my folding coffee table in the living room and used my great aunt's small mahogany one with my canvas director's chairs to eat at for the first week or two. We need to furnish the dining room, Jay decided. Let's go check out some tag sales. These were the Connecticut equivalent of garage sales in Evanston, where I'd searched for chests of drawers, side tables, and extra seating after coming to America. Jay had so much fun buying and selling that before we left Chicago, he helped me organize a sale on the front porch of my house, practically giving away some of my lucky finds, to my chagrin. Every weekend, as we ran errands around Fairfield, he'd be on the lookout for a sign at the side of the road. Noticing one, he'd slam on the brakes and we'd proceed to the garage to hunt for things we needed. We found estate sales were the most interesting. Jay, because he liked the better quality items, while I enjoyed checking out other people's homes. As he pulled over one morning on a narrow road overlooking Southport Harbour, I sighed because we'd been on our way to find a sofa in a local department store. I knew attempting to stop him was like trying to restrain a dog who's just spotted a promising squirrel. So I trudged down the steep drive behind him, glad the waterfront house was small so this would be over fast. In fact, it turned out to be larger than it appeared, and soon Jay was browsing through the house while I admired the views from each window. I lost track of him for a while, but he suddenly reappeared at my elbow and grabbed my hand. Look what I found, he said in a stage whisper as he led me into the next room. His lowered voice signaled that he didn't want the owners to know of his interest in the item in case the price went up. All I could see, though, apart from an upright piano, was a sofa and matching armchairs upholstered in a hideous orange velour. He couldn't possibly mean them, could he? What? The piano! He beamed and then must have noticed my expression. I've always wanted to learn and it's only 500 bucks. This was the first I'd heard of any desire on my husband's part to study music. He rarely listened to it as I was discovering and had told me once he couldn't carry a tune. But right now, that wasn't the point. We haven't got anything to sit on yet. Why don't we keep on looking while we think about it? We wandered into the adjoining room where Jay spotted a pair of salt and pepper shakers. They were easy to spot, being of the size waiters use in a restaurant when they're offering to pepper your plate of spaghetti. On the other hand, they were much less expensive than the alternative. Wow, I said, then expressed some doubt. I figured if Jay felt he had to persuade me, he might feel a small sense of triumph and forget about music lessons. He walked out with the giant shakers under his arm, perfectly happy. I dragged out the story every time a guest raised an eyebrow at the sight of them. Let me tell you how we ended up with these instead of a piano. We had the condiment set, but it looked ridiculous on the little table we were using. So a couple of weeks later, we drove up to Litchfield County, Connecticut's antiques mecca. 
we noticed a store advertising English country pine and pulled in. The shop itself was disappointing, but the proprietor, a short, cheerful woman in her 50s, took us out to her barn. Inside, the shadows made things hard to discern, but we found a table half hidden in one corner. The pale gold planks which formed the top were only revealed when the owner dusted it off, releasing a cloud of motes into the sunlight now streaming through the door. Various scrapes and cuts had been scored into the surface, but they appeared genuine, not, as was often the case, added by unscrupulous dealers. How big is it? I asked. Let me get you a yardstick. I'd written the room measurements on the back of our latest electricity bill, so while she and Jay measured and read out the results, I checked to make sure there'd be enough space for it. There was. I loved it. We both did. Now the woman was pointing out a hutch on the other side of the barn. They'd look lovely together, don't you think? It was attractive, roughly as wide as the table was long and the same colour, but there was something off about it. It's not very tall for a Welsh dresser. She clearly understood this was Brit speak for hutch. It's Irish, she explained. Maybe feeling this wasn't enough, she went on. Well, I think someone may have cut it down a bit to fit a low-ceiling cottage. Well-chosen words. I pictured a small dwelling with a peat roof in County Kerry, though I'd never been to Ireland. It did sound romantic. Jay and I looked at each other. I'd already checked out the price tags and was sure we were way out of our league. Together, they'd come to $5,500. We had, so far as I knew, nothing like that amount to spare. I'd only broken even when I sold my house in Chicago and paid for the move. I was driving Jay's old station wagon because we didn't have the money for a new car. We can't afford this, I whispered. I'll bet I can get them for less, and we should buy ourselves a wedding present, don't you think? I'm sure he sensed I was beginning to waver. I might find a job soon, I mused, so we'd be able to pay for this. The pieces were lovely, and we'd have somewhere to put the giant salt and pepper shakers. Plus, we need a dining room table. He bargained her down to 5000 with free delivery. So began a pattern that continued throughout our married life. Jay would find something he wanted to buy, which I considered too expensive. If I liked it too, I'd let him talk me into it. Only on the rare occasion I truly hated an item would I put up a fight. I'd recognized by then that my husband was even more stubborn than I, so I learned to avoid lost causes. Generally, this worked out well. I still think we could have done without the wicker drinks trolley we never used, the fake fish that sang, don't worry, be happy, and the unlovely painting of a boy in a field, all of which Jay loved. I did have one close shave. Jay had brought an ugly brass lamp from his old home, which I tried to refurbish with a lot of brasso and elbow grease. None of it helped and the lamp stood on a side table as far out of sight as I could place it. 
After a while, I moved it surreptitiously to the basement. Jay didn't notice. So when the local high school was asking for donations for its annual giant sale, I stowed it in the trunk of my car and donated it. On the day of the sale, my only goal was to keep the champion shopper away from that part of town. But as he took a shortcut to get to the supermarket, I knew I was doomed. Look, sweetheart, a tag sale. I smiled gamely as he swerved into the school parking lot and hoped I would be able to steer him away from the table with all the household odds and ends. It was not to be. Darling, look, Jay's whisper boomed in my ear. We have a lamp just like that at home. If we bought this one, we'd have a pair. It took all my powers of persuasion to lead him away to something else. I think that's where we found the nightstand with the uneven bamboo legs. The first thing I need you to know is I'm okay. Now, here's the story. It's late February 2020. It's Saturday morning. I am lying on the couch watching TV. I fall asleep. I wake up and the right side of my face feels like it's made of potter's clay slowly sliding off my skull. I get scared. I can't move my right arm or my right leg. I try to call out to my wife, but my tongue is thick in my mouth. Help! She races down the stairs. She tries to pull me up. I can't help her. I slide back to a reclining position. I can see the fear in her eyes. She calls 911. Hello. My husband is having a stroke. Soon, we can hear the sirens off in the distance, approaching fast, louder and louder. They're coming, honey, she says. I know they're coming for me. I'm terrified. It's all out of control. They arrive. She holds the door open. Soon our TV room is full of paramedics, firemen, sheriff, young men in uniforms willing, wearing wool knit caps. Why wool? It's February in Minnesota. They're all friendly. Hey, buddy, what happened? I can understand everything they're saying, but I can't say anything that anybody can understand. Six of them roll me onto a gray sheet with black handles. They hoist me off of the couch and carry me out of the house. I'm folded in half. My right arm goes over my chest. I'm folded in half like you'd fold a piece of bread. I get outside. Now, I'm only wearing my pajamas. 
and it's cold. I start to shiver. They roll me onto a gurney and into the ambulance. The door closes. I'm in the ambulance with the paramedic. He's a short guy wearing a white wool cap and a bushy beard. He tries to draw blood from my right arm. Phil, can you raise your right arm for me? I can't move it. I flop it around like a, like a fish in a boat. I, I can't do it. Finally, he gets blood from my left arm. And then the paramedic starts asking me about the medications I take. And I take a few. I try to tell him, but I can think the words in my head, but I can't say them. And I'm not trying to be funny here, but this is what it sounded like. I have a diamond on. We race down the freeway to the hospital. We pull into the ambulance entrance. A gurney rolls into the emergency room. I'm taken to the MRI. They scan my brain. They pull me out of the MRI. And on a video screen, I can see a young man looking at me. It's my brain surge. Who I'm meeting for the first time. I come to know him as Dr. G. Dr. G says, Phil, I want to give you a drug to undo a clot that I suspect is in an artery in your brain. Some people react really well to this drug. Others do not. Do you want me to give you the drug? Yes. Yes. I want the drug. They administer the drug. I come to find out later it's called Altaplace. Now, they make an incision in my body. And they snake a tube up to the back of my brain. And what I come to learn later is the basilar artery. They prep me for surgery. Now I'm rolled into surgery and the room is quiet and, and dim. And I can hear voices, very business-like voices. They know what they're doing. I can't understand a word they're saying at this point, but I, all I can do is trust them. And they go to pull the clot out and it's gone. The drug has dissolved the clot. There's nothing to pull out. They wheel me into the neuro ICU. Neuro intensive care. Now, the doctors and nurses check on me frequently, every half hour. Phil, can you push my hands away? Can you pull me closer? Can you hold out your arms like Superman? Can you follow my fingers with your eyes? Can you stick out your tongue? Can you make your cheeks puff out? I do all these things over and over and over. It becomes a routine. My wife and daughter have come with me to the hospital and they stay with me for the rest of the day on Saturday. By this time, because of the Alta place, I can talk. They decide, we decide, my wife and I decide to tell our friends on Facebook what's happened to me. I find out later that my wife has also asked people to pray for me. My wife and daughter go home for the evening. I'm alone with my thoughts. 
I'm scared. What's going to happen to me? It's all unknown and it's terrifying. It gets to be dark in the hospital room and the darkness of the room reflects the darkness of my heart. I have never been this scared. I'm low and I'm frightened. Sunday morning comes, the sun rises. My wife and daughter return. My wife tells me, people are praying for you. She's learned this on Facebook, but she didn't have to tell me. I, I'm not a particularly religious person in terms of organized religion, but throughout the day, and I don't know how to explain this, throughout the day, I felt the fear and anxiety being replaced as day replaces the night with peace and hope and a sense of calm. I have never experienced anything like that before. I'm in the hospital for another day. Phil, can you puff out your cheeks? Phil, can you stick out your tongue? It goes on and on. Now, a day later, the doctor comes in the room. He looks at me and he says, do you want to go home? I say, yes, I do. And I'm discharged from the hospital with a sense of gratitude. I have full use of my speech. I'm grateful to talk to you now. I can move my arms and my legs. And I emerge from the hospital with a sense of being renewed. I have another chance. This. So here's us to you. If you or anyone you know has a stroke, call for help right away. Don't wait. Be fast. Please remember this acronym. Be fast. B for balance. If you have sudden difficulty with your balance, E for eyes. If you have sudden problems with your vision, in one or both of your eyes, F for face. If your face droops on one side, arms, A for arms. If you have sudden weakness in your arm or your leg, S for speech. If you're unable to repeat a simple sentence or, or you have slurred words and it all ends in T for time. If you have any of these symptoms, any of these symptoms, call 911 immediately. Be fast. I emerged from that experience with a sense of gratitude. And I'm grateful to you for listening. 
I'd like to put in a good word for honesty, a quality that has slipped out of favor in recent years. I have spent a lifetime as moody as Diogenes, who wandered the ancient streets, clutching a glowing lantern in broad daylight, in search of an honest man. Unlike the famous Greek cynic, however, I am at least tinged with optimism and a great deal less judgmental, I think. I also bathe, do not live in a barrel, and though despairing over the seeming lack of integrity around me, I eventually concluded that perhaps it is not the norm of human nature, but rather my own specific life lesson to be surrounded by liars. My brother, five years my senior, twisted and turned his way through half-truths and distortions to get his way avoid school and be in places he had no place being, in the company of what my mother would term the wrong crowd. This was a path that led to a lifetime of substance abuse for him. For others, it leads to politics. My brother trudged begrudgingly through an unhappy life and died without ever admitting his addictions. For many years, every conversation was ultimately exposed as a tactic leading to an ask for money or something he wanted. And, oh, the stories of how he, the world was unfair and how anything bad that happened to him was someone else's fault. From him, I learned that getting away with things might offer a temporary kick, but it refers living life on a tightrope strung across a black abyss. I watched him fall into the abyss and amazingly crawl back up to walk the same tightrope again and again until the day he did not make it back up in November 2013. I also grew up with a flamboyantly gay hairdresser first cousin, Peter, who claimed, oddly enough, to have fathered children with a dozen different women. He was a pathological liar telling all kinds of self-aggrandizing stories, movies he claimed to be in, celebrities he claimed to have slept with, and his assistance to anyone who would listen that our family was descended from the Romanovs. I was forbidden to visit him in his center city, Philadelphia lair. Among my own flirtations with dishonesty was a tendency to mislead my parents about what I was doing after school. And I managed to find my way to cousin Peter's place many times in spite of all warnings. One day I showed up while he was entertaining a room full of guests. He introduced me to them in his living room and then went off to the kitchen to get drinks. They were all wide-eyed and breathless, and one finally broke an awkward silence, turned and asked me, is it true about your family? I wasn't sure what he meant. Are you really descended from Russian royalty? Asked another. I stuttered in confusion. Uh, not, not that I'm aware of but they all pointed to a tapestry hanging proudly on the wall, a heraldic emblem that Peter had told them all was the family crest of the Romanov dynasty. <laughs> Peter's story trumped my stuttering, given added credibility by his associating our family name Lazar with Czar, although I think he stopped short of claiming he was the long lost Duchess Anastasia. His sister, Jen, was a sadder case. Let me do that again, I'm sorry. Peter's story trumped my stuttering, given added credibility by his associating our family names Lazar 
with Tsar. Oh, I think he stopped short of claiming he was the long-lost Grand Duchess Anastasia. His sister Jan was a sadder case, very introverted and insecure, the product of a boastful older brother and abusive parents. Lying was an escape for her. She was lean, tall, beautiful, and blonde as a teen, but detested herself, at least in part because of her near six-foot height. She slouched to minimize her presence and often escaped into fantasy, seeming to disappear while standing right in front of you. Later in life, she put on over 200 additional pounds, ruined her health, her knees, and her ankles, and was wheelchair-bound. She also sank slowly into schizophrenia, and in the rare phone calls I made to her, I had to learn not to get exasperated or angered by her accusations and her reinventing of the past, our family, and my childhood. I went from, that never happened, to, um, I don't quite remember it that way, to, hmm, well, that's interesting. I endured phone calls in which she claimed my brother had moved next door to her in Wilkesbury in order to spy on her, convoluted stories about her daughter Mira, whom I never spoken to or met, and an alleged marriage to a first cousin I had never even heard of in my entire life. I received long, rambling letters from her that included demands that I share the money I had won in the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, I wish. Stories about seeing my lover with bleached blonde hair in various celebrity magazines. He has never colored his hair in the 30 years we've been together. And a long involved period in which she was frustrated that I didn't acknowledge that we were related to legendary comic Milton Berle. Apparently, when Uncle Milty died, she was made the executor of his, his state. Then there was my first lover, Bill, who claimed his father had been president of Yugoslavia and assassinated in a car explosion. There was no internet back then for me to fact check. He also intimated CIA connections and all manner of political intrigue and sported an awful toupee, which he never took off the entire four years I knew him. He would sleep with it on every night I was with him and wake up and pretend it hadn't shifted awkwardly on his head during the night. Years later, when I finally confronted him about it, he simply denied he was bald. Ten years later, there was Vinny, the mafia-tinged investor in my off-Broadway show who won my producer's trust and bilked me out of $30,000, and John, the record producer who poured about the same amount into a CD of mine, only to be later exposed and jailed for having embezzled all that money from a financial company he worked for. I eventually came to the conclusion that you cannot do much about another person's reality other than let it be. I learned not to question or challenge people who were committed to their own mashup truths about the world, and I never let their truth affect my choices. Many years and many lessons later, I am married to a man of infinite integrity, and I trust the people around me. Sure, there's the occasional big talker, even the well-intentioned fellow who promises more than he can deliver. 
But all in all, I feel I have clear toxicity from my personal space. And so I apologize, since I may have leaked it into a cloud that now enfolds us all. Here we are on an ailing planet, crowded with millions who think integrity is weakness and who revere alternate facts and getting away with stuff. People genuinely love the former president and deeply believe the big lie, or so we call it, that the election was stolen from him. That is their truth. It just is. Don't even bother poking at it. They hear the facts about his bending truth to suit his needs, and the rumors that Letitia James confirms about his unethical business practices, and it only endears them to him even more. He is their hero, their role model, a queerly quaffed Machiavellian who wins no matter the blood spilt by others, and they willingly embrace his truth. And now the Democrats even have a liar to call their very own Joe Manchin, the man who pulled off the questionable feat of manipulating and misleading a Congress full of colleagues into making fools of themselves. Nicely done, Joe. Nicely done, Joe. The guy had us all believing there was a compromise he might agree to that would allow the Build Back Better bill to pass. Then he pulled it away like Lucy's football. Surely he would allow a change in Senate rules that would enable a bill he supported to ensure voting rights protections. But he cut that one off at the knees. He dangled his support again and again, then gleefully pulled the carpet out from under everyone like a wicked child. And so we finally learned the definitive opposite of a mensch. A manch. Like my troubled brother, self-aggrandizing cousin and his delusional sister, millions have little use for facts and see only what serves them, swaddling themselves in lies like comforting blankets. They find election fraud where none exists, while all the, well, all the while perpetrating their own election fraud. They find election fraud where none exists, while all the while perpetrating their own election fraud. Where many of us saw an insurrection, they see patriots fighting to win back a country that many of us believe was nothing like the one our founding fathers envisioned. So let's turn back progress and give America back to entitled white people. Sure, why not? Whoever thought we were at a place in our country's evolution where voting rights, a basic tenet of our democracy, would be brazenly denied to those who might otherwise bring conscience to our country. And whoever dreamed the clock could be turned back on reproductive rights and gay rights. There are even those among us who accept Putin's version of the slaughter in Ukraine. If Diogenes was driven to despairing madness by the dishonesty of the human race in 300 BC, what would he make of our current world? I was in New York City sitting on a low ledge on the median strip at Park Avenue and 86th Street. A crisp spring day, blue skies, tulips about to burst, masks on, but a hopeful energy. New Yorkers eating outside, walking and running across the crosswalk, cars passing north and south and east and west, sitting in the sun, waiting for my appointment. I am still. 
watching the scene unfold around me. A loud cracking of a tree limb. I turn and look over my left shoulder, a thud on the hood of a parked car. Windshield smashed, car alarm blares, and I see a pair of twisted legs lying on the street near the curb in front of the wailing car. I freeze frame. No one else is looking, reacting. Life is moving on as it was a second ago, except I am in a frozen bubble of uncertainty. I look up, look back at the motionless legs. Did someone fall, jump? Were they pushed? Broken limb on a windless day. Thud, car alarm, legs. Couples chat, walking down the sunny sidewalk. A doorman jokes and gestures under the awning. Cars whiz by. Lights change, people cross Park Avenue. Slowly, a double take. Irritation at the car alarm causes a second look. A small semicircle forms near the broken tree and the relentless car alarm. A young woman quickly joins me on the median and asks to borrow my phone. Her battery is dead and she wants to call her mom. She's distraught by what she sees. As she hands me back my phone, a guy on a bike stops by us and asks what happened. I say someone jumped, fell, or was pushed. I flag down an ambulance that happens to be going west on 86th Street, and I tell them someone fell or jumped and needs their help. They make a U-turn and park alongside the motionless legs. Two more ambulances arrive from Lenox Hill, sirens, police, yellow tape, cars diverted. Crowds gather. The median is now full. The biker returns with information. The woman died on impact. But then, seconds later, a gurney carrying a young boy, I guess about 10 years old, is rolled toward the back of an ambulance. It wasn't a woman. It was a boy a beautiful boy with jet black hair, alabaster skin, royal blue shorts, seemingly sleeping peacefully, blood dripping out of the side of his mouth. A medic frantically pumping the boy's chest as others lift and slide the gurney into the back of the ambulance. Doors close, no siren. A thin young woman with long hair in gray sweats, crumbling, wobbly knees, hand to mouth and flailing arms, tries to get into the back of the ambulance, but is pulled away and escorted around the side by the police. The crowd murmurs, that's his mom. Really? I heard the boy found out his father had a heart attack and jumped out the window. Really? We all look up. There is no open window. A middle-aged man appears near the back of the ambulance, erratically pacing with minced steps in one direction, then the other. Not sure where to go, his lime green sneakers leading him nowhere. He holds his head, elbows out to the side, as if he's stopping it from exploding. He turns back toward the building. 
The ambulance still hasn't pulled away. Not a good sign. A tall, broad-shouldered frat boy in shorts and flip-flops meanders over. He stands near me on the median and points up at the building. A small crowd circles around him. No, there, he admonishes and points. Ninth floor, third window to the right. Where? Strangers ask. There, just count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and over three. That's the window. What are you talking about? I ask. That's the window. That's where he fell from, frat boy replies. How do you know? Is that the angle the boy had to fall from in order to hit the tree in the hood of the car and land near the curb? Oh, is that what happened? Were you here? The circle of people turns to me. Yes, I was here. And we don't know whether that young boy fell or jumped from a window or the roof. We don't know if those people were his parents, relatives, babysitters, or none of the above. It was not a woman who died on impact. It was a little boy whose father probably did not have a heart attack compelling him to jump from the window as far as we know. I leave and go to my appointment. When I head back to my car about an hour later, the yellow tape is still up. A lone police car is parked in front of 1045 Park Avenue. Uptown car traffic has resumed. People still gather on the median strip, pointing, taking pictures, spreading stories. I head up Park Avenue across the street from the building. Small groups of people huddle along the sidewalk, looking up, talking as if they know what they don't. Driving home, I keep replaying that sound. The cracking branch, thud, car alarm, legs. That night, I Google, boy dies on Park Avenue. And several stories pop up. 12-year-old boy commits suicide by jumping from the roof of 15-story building at 1045 Park Avenue, Upper East Side. An investigation into the incident remains ongoing. I witnessed a horrific end to a young life. I also witnessed the need for people to make up stories, make assumptions and spread facts when they aren't facts at all. Grabbing onto false narratives to calm our anxiety and despair, we make up stories, believe stories, crazy stories to make sense of things. But sometimes things just don't make sense. I still Google about this little boy, looking for an update in the investigation, an obituary, anything, but nothing. 
I'm left with the images and sounds and questions. I try to settle into the uncomfortableness, the uncertainty. I do fantasize that on that glorious April afternoon, when that little boy was standing up there on the edge of the roof, scanning the cityscape below, he noticed a woman sitting in the median strip near the tulips, watching the city breathe around her. And at that moment, I turn, look up, catch his eye, shake my head no, and say, don't do it. I promise things will get better. I am so sorry. I'm sorry you didn't know it would get better. Next time I'm in the city, I'll put flowers at the base of that broken tree. An epilogue. This happened a year ago, April. A few weeks ago, I opened the April 11th issue of The New Yorker and noticed an article entitled Mystifying Rise of Child Suicide, a Family Tragedy Sheds Light on a Burgeoning Mental Health Emergency. As I quickly skimmed the piece, words started popping out. Upper East Side, Private Boys School, Afternoon of April 6th, and then Trevor jumped off the roof of his apartment building on 86th Street and Park Avenue, killing himself. He was a few months past his 12th birthday. Oh my God, this was the boy. How ironic, from not knowing to being handed an in-depth 11-page expose. This was my chance to understand, learn the facts, know what happened. I started from the beginning, carefully reading each word. I couldn't sleep that night. I now know more than I could have imagined. But I still don't really know. I don't know why. Why that day? Why then? Why? And I know I never will.